Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd." And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The sentence of the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's uh, once again pray and ask God to help us by his spirit to understand this great chapter of his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the book of Revelation as the final book of your scriptures that and all the ways that we sometimes find it difficult, but we thank you that it's given for our instruction and edification. It's given for our encouragement that we might uh, be better strengthened to serve you in our generation and to look forward to the hope of heaven to come. We ask once again that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, that you would teach us by him and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you were thinking about uh, the sermon text before you came in this morning, and I don't know if maybe some of you thought seems like an odd text for Palm Sunday. I think you might have been able to see why why it's uh, such a fitting chapter uh, for it. It wasn't my plan. I can't claim any brilliant plan that I thought this all out and had it all planned out. 
But in God's providence, we happen to be looking at Revelation 7, and it fits very well with Palm Sunday. So uh, here we go, and we'll see what we can learn from this passage this morning. Um, If you haven't been here, some of you haven't been here throughout our time in Revelation, uh, to give you kind of a recap of the previous chapters, uh, especially the previous chapter, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is where you have the Lamb taking that scroll from the right hand of God on the throne. It's sealed with seven seals. And that's a picture of completeness, that no, no one could open this seal. It's perfectly sealed shut by God. And there was like a, 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 there was a search uh, in the previous chapters to see who was worthy to open that scroll and break those seals. And there was no one found in heaven or on earth. Not a single one of all of creation was found worthy to do that. And then one. Who, who was found worthy? The Lamb. The Lamb who had been slain for the salvation of his people, was found worthy to break those seals and open the scroll. And and as we saw in, in the previous chapter, every time he broke a seal, things happened. John saw a vision when, when the first seal was broken. Remember, the first four seals is when the four horsemen of the apocalypse rode forth, uh, bringing judgments upon, upon this world. Uh, when he opened uh, the sixth seal in verses 9 through 12, uh, he was shown, quote, a vision of, quote, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And what were they doing? They were in heaven, but they were crying out to God, and they were basically saying, how long? How long, O Lord, until you have, you know, avenge our blood and right this, this wrong? And God's answer to them in verse 11 of the previous chapter wasn't that he wasn't going to judge. It was to rest a little longer. In other words, he was telling them, Judgment's coming, but you're going to have to wait. It has its time. It has its God-ordained time for his judgments to fall, but they were going to have to wait. When the Lamb opened the sixth seal in that previous chapter, what you see is a vision of a cataclysmic judgment. When, when you read it, the, the, the sky is rolled up like a scroll. The stars fall from the sky. It, it seems like the entire created order is coming undone at the wrath of God and at the wrath of of the Lamb, and you have this scene towards the end of the previous chapter where you have all people, great and small, the wicked and the unrepentant, especially those who persecuted the church of God. And what are they doing? They're, they're, they're hiding in, in caves under rocks. They're calling for the mountains to hide them from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And at the end of that chapter, there's a question that, that's asked, and it's, who can stand? For the day of God and the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come, and who can stand? Now, that that verse, that question in that verse, is one that we are supposed to take to heart. When we read that, we shouldn't think, oh, that's interesting. You know, that's that's how we often treat, hopefully not a lot of Scripture, but I think Revelation is one of those books that we tend to, in our worst or not-so-good moments, we treat it like it's there for our curiosity. Like we just, it's nice information to know. Uh, it's neat for dinner parties and conversation. Uh, we almost treat it like it's trivia, like it's just a puzzle to be solved and not a picture book given to us for our edification, instruction, and even for our encouragement. You know, I, I tend, pastors tend to say the same things over and over again. And I, it's not just because I'm getting older, but I think it's because we need to hear certain things over and over again. Well, this book, as disturbing as some of it might feel to us when you're reading it, some of the visions seem kind of frightening even and disturbing. It's not given to frighten Christians. It's given to encourage Christians, to give us encouragement and hope 
in time of trial and tribulation. You know, many, many times, I won't criticize it too much, but some of the literature that you may have read in recent decades on, on these things, on the last times and the book of Revelation, uh, sometimes it feels to me like that it's the opposite intention of, of what the scriptures are trying to do. That it's almost like a trying, to, like a scared straight. You know, if you're a Christian, you better not, you better get straight, otherwise you might end up going through the tribulation, that kind of a thing. That's not what God has given this for. Now, if you're following along in chapter 6 and you have seal 1, seal 2, seal 3, and all the way through seal 6 being broken, and all these things happening, these visions of the future and whatnot, coming, coming to pass when the Lamb breaks those seals, what's the next thing you would expect to see in Revelation? If you know there are seven seals and you've seen the first six get broken, you're probably thinking, if you haven't already read it, I know what comes next. It's the seventh seal. But when we read this chapter, when I just read it just now, did you hear anything about the seventh seal? No. In fact, the seventh seal doesn't get broken until Revelation chapter 8. Now, John didn't write chapter headings, so don't read too much into that. But uh, there's a great delay between the sixth seal in these visions and the breaking of that seventh seal. Well, here in Revelation, this is kind of an intermission of sorts. And if you've ever been to a, a play or, or a program where they, it's rather long and they have to have an intermission so they can sell snacks, uh, but they let you, you know, kind of stretch your legs and catch your breath and, and that kind of a thing. Well, I think in some ways, that's what Revelation 7 is. It's an intermission of sorts. It's kind of a break in the action, not that there's no action in this chapter. And this break in the action is to kind of give us a chance to catch our collective breath and to be encouraged by God as we go through this book. It's, it's given, this, this book and this chapter is given to, to comfort and reassure us as Christians. It was given to the early church for the same reason, who were going through all kinds of, of trials and tribulations. It was given to comfort and reassure them, and it's given to comfort and reassure you and I, if you're a believer as well. Today, Now, you think about those six seals and the cataclysmic judgments that are going on. You know, the early church, we tend to think that we're so different than them. When they were reading this, they probably thought some of the same things that you did. This is, this is frightening stuff. This is disturbing stuff. I don't know if I want to keep reading. Maybe I don't want to know what's going to happen. And so chapter 7 is given to comfort them and us throughout these things in the light of all these things that we're reading about And so here in this chapter, we're going to see, I hope, at least three things. And the first of those things is the sealing of the 144,000 and the security of the saints on this earth. That's the theme, I think, of the first eight verses. In verses 1 through 3, John says this, After this, after the sixth seal, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea, or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on our foreheads. And then what do you have? You have those verses uh, that describe in, in de- some detail the different tribes of Israel and 12,000 from each tribe being being sealed. Now, if you've been reading your Bible for a long time, you might know that this particular number, as many numbers in Revelation are, has been subject to some wild speculation and some strange interpretations over the years. 
And so for this reason, you know, sometimes we come to these chapters and we think, you know, everybody that's come before us can't seem to get it. How am I supposed to understand it? Maybe I should just keep reading and not worry about trying to figure out what it means. Uh, a good example is uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, you've had some of them probably knock at your door uh, throughout your life. It's a pseudo-Christian cult. It's a Christian uh, cult in name only. They are not Christians. Uh, their official doctrine uh, from this passage is that they teach even today that only 144,000 people, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, uh, will be in heaven. That's that's it. There is a cutoff, and I would think by the number of the people in that church, in that false church, that they've far exceeded that number to this point. And so what do they do? Maybe they didn't expect the church to grow that much. They had low expectations, and, and uh, the evil one gave them more than they bargained for. Uh, and so what do they teach now? They teach, well, 144,000 will be in heaven, but don't worry, the rest of y'all, not you, thankfully, but the rest of their membership, uh, you'll be in paradise on earth forever. God will God'll fix it up nice, and that's where you'll live, but you won't make the cut. That's just the really, really good Jehovah's Witnesses. That's why, maybe that's why they go to door to door so much. They're trying to get the golden ticket to get, uh, to get into heaven. Well, that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, how they square that with the very next passage in this chapter, I don't know. Because that innumerable multitude, where are they? They're not on earth. They're before the throne of God. Last time I checked, that's not here. That's in heaven. Don't know what they do with that, to be honest. Now, they, they have all kinds of, of different doctrines that are an, uh, against Scripture. Uh, they, they, they reject the deity of Christ, the true deity of Christ. They preach a false gospel. And so it should not surprise us that they go astray on other doctrines as well. Do not get your doctrines from them or their version, their false version of the Bible. Well, they're not, they're not the only ones that have odd views of this number. Our dispensational brothers and sisters, uh, some, of, some of them teach some rather odd things on this book of Revelation also. Uh, they are not a cult. Uh, they, they just teach things that are strange in ways. And uh, what they teach on this chapter is that this ceiling of the 144,000 comes after the rapture. They believe that the church, at some point in the future, that Christ will sort of come back, but not all the way, that he'll remove the church, all believers, from this earth, and then what they say happens here is a literal ceiling uh, of a converted, uh, a, a large number of converted Jews. They, they view these as ac- actual ethnic Jews who are, who are converted to Christ and are sealed to be evangelists during the Great Tribulation. Uh, one one notable writer uh, says, goes so far, Hal Lindsey says this, he says, they will be like 144 Jewish Billy Grahams turned loose at once. That's, that's what they think this is talking about. So the church, according to them, the church is now gone. We're all up in heaven before it gets bad because no Christians have ever suffered tribulation on this earth or been martyred, even though the previous chapter mentions quite a few martyrs, doesn't it? Uh, so they, they take this in a, a rather odd, literal sense, that they mentions the 12 tribes, which aren't really the exact 12 tribes, if you take notice of the names that are listed. Some of them are changed. Judah is put first. Judah was not the firstborn, but why is Judah put, forth, put first? Judah is the tribe from which the Messiah himself uh, descended from. Now, I, I believe we have to reject both, both the Jehovah's Witnesses' view as well as that dispensationalist Jewish witness view of this passage. Neither one of those is what God, I think, intends for us to understand from these things. The Jehovah's Witness view, they reject the plain teachings of Scripture, while the latter view, the dispensational view, while they are Christians, 
we should embrace them as such, but they, I think they ignore the plain meaning of Scripture. When you read Revelation, the, the very first chapter tells you that a lot of it is, is it's symbolic. These visions aren't what things are supposed to actually look like. They are to tell us what things are going to be like. And so when you see a lot, numbers, especially in the book of Revelation, very often have a very symbolic significance to them. And I think the 12,000, what is 12, what is 12,000 from each tribe and 144,000 equal? It's 12 times 12. This is a math lesson. 12 times 12 is 144. You have 12 apostles. You have 12, uh, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes. And then a thousand is, is expressing, it's expressing a multitude. So it's a, it's a picture of the church militant on this earth. That's, that's what we are to understand by this, by these numbers. So we go from the church on earth with, with this large number. It's not meant to be taken literally in that sense. We don't think there's just 144,000 Christians on this earth at any particular time. And then we go to an innumerable multitude in the very next part of our, of our chapter. This, this passage with the sealing of the tribes has its roots back in the book of Ezekiel. You'll notice as we've gone through this book of Revelation, that book pops up again and again, and it feels, feels like every, every chapter, something about Ezekiel keeps coming up, and I don't think that's without reason. Well, Ezekiel chapter 9 speaks it's a picture of the judgment of God upon Jerusalem at the time of Ezekiel's ministry. They were committing idolatry from the greatest down to the least. There was idolatry blaspheming in the temple, and God was going to send judgment upon his people. Ezekiel 9, 4 to 6, uh, chapter 9, verses 4 through 6 says this, And the Lord said to him, uh, this, there was a man with a, a scribe, basically, he says, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and here it is, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, there's always a remnant. One of, one of the themes you find in the Old Testament especially is that even at the time of the greatest apostasy and rebellion in the people of Israel, there was always a faithful remnant. Remember Elijah at one point thought he was the last one? He's like, if he's almost telling God, I'm paraphrasing, you know, God, if they get me, the whole jig is up. I'm the last Mohican and if they're, and they're gonna get me. And what did God tell him? Did he say, you know, you're right. You are the last one. No, he said, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's not just you. It might feel like just you. You might feel like you're on your own. I, I can take care of this. I've got this and I have reserved for myself. They weren't, there weren't 7,000 people to just so happen to on their own stay faithful to God. God had kept them. He had reserved for himself that many. So, in a similar way, you have a remnant in the city of Jerusalem that was aware of the idolatry that was going on among them, even in the temple. And what did they do? It says they, they sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed. Abominations. That's a serious word. That's what, that, that's what was happening, even in the temple, if you can imagine that. And there were some people in Jerusalem who were groaning and grieving over it. And so God tells his, this man to, to put a mark on the foreheads of those people and it says, and to the others, he said, in my hearing, and the others are the executioners. This is a pretty serious passage. He says, pass through the city after him. In other words, the man was going to mark all the people on the forehead so they could see it. Uh, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men 
kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Begin at the temple. So they began with the elders who were before the house. That's some pretty serious judgment going on. What does the Bible say in the New Testament? Judgment begins where? With the household of God. And if it begins with the household of God, uh, what does the rest of the verse say? What will be, what will happen, what will come of the unbeliever and the unrepentant? If God even chastises his own people severely at times, uh, what hope does the wicked who don't repent and turn to Christ possibly have? What was the, what was the point of that, of that account? Only those with the mark or the seal of God on their foreheads were spared. That's the same idea here in our chapter, that they were going to seal the servants of God from each, from each tribe. So using that imagery of 12,000 from each tribe, the Lord is giving us a picture of the entirety of the church militant on this earth. Of all the God, people of God in this life, both Jew and Gentile alike, who believed in Christ. And this is a military picture. You know, very often when you had these listings of the numbers of men in the tribe of, you know, this and that and the other thing, in the Old Testament, very often it was like a military muster. Some of you spent time in the military, and you know what muster is? Muster is everybody shows up and you're counted. It's kind of a counting of the troops. So to say it's the church militant, I think that's exactly the picture that's being offered here in our chapter. They were being counted and, so to speak, mustered for the day of battle. So what this passage in Revelation is about, I believe, is the sealing, not of a select group of individuals within the church, uh, but of all of God's people on this earth who are in the pilgrimage and in the day of battle. They're being sealed with the seal, quote-unquote, verse 2, the seal of the living God. What's the point here? Why are they being sealed? Now, if you know the rest of the book and the rest of the scriptures, you know they're not being sealed from problems. The seal of God does not spare God's people, does not spare you or me from trouble. It does not spare us from tribulation, as much as many would like to say that it it would do that. What did Jesus say? In this world you have tribulation. Paul says everyone uh, everyone who serves God will what? Will, Will suffer persecution. Everyone. Everyone who seeks to live godly in Christ Jesus is going to suffer some kind of persecution. They're sealed with the seal of the living God. It's a picture I believe this is this is the point I think God is making for us in this part of the passage. It's a picture of the safety or security of all of God's people on this earth, even through time of tribulation and trial, even when God outpours his judgments on this earth. His people ultimately will not be harmed by it. Just as those men in Jerusalem in that vision in Ezekiel were, were spared, in an even greater sense, all of God's people are spared the wrath of God. Uh, because of Christ. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, have you been sealed? The answer to that question is yes. If you're a believer in Christ, you have been sealed. And what or whom, hint, have you been sealed with? The Holy Spirit of God is the seal upon you. And it's not a mark on your forehead, but God sees it just the same. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, remember that, that passage where Paul is giving this long list? It's almost the biggest run-on sentence in the Bible kind of thing where he's going on and on, and it's almost like he's just, he can't stop. And he's telling, here's all these blessings you have in Christ. And in verses 13 to 14, he says, In him, that's in Christ, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, here it is, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who, not what, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Can you lose your salvation? No. You're sealed for the day of redemption, and you're not just sealed, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. God finishes what he starts. Now, what's a seal? A lot of terms we kind of have to talk about a little bit. A seal is a mark of authenticity. It's a mark of ownership. Remember, a king would take his signet ring and imprint it in the wax on a document or some such thing, and it was a sign a sign of his authenticity of that document that he really did utter this thing to be sent forth. It's a sign of his possession, that the one who's marked by the Holy Spirit is possessed and owned by God, having been redeemed by the blood of, of Christ. It's a mark of security and safety. If you're owned by God, if you're redeemed by the blood of Christ, uh, that seal upon you is something that, that not just marks you and sets you aside and sets you apart, it's also a mark of the security of of you in Christ. It's The Holy Spirit, what does Paul say, is the guarantee, the guarantee, the down payment of your salvation and inheritance. So if you're sealed by God, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 38 and 39. The church militant, even in times of persecution and great tribulation, is to rest secure in the love of Christ because of this seal. So when we read this part of the chapter, we are to think, oh, good, I don't, I get to get out of all the hard stuff. That's not what it says, but it says you cannot be separated from the love of God by any of these things. Because God has put his seal upon you. Well, that brings us to the second thing. And that's not just these, this number of 144,000, but an innumerable multitude in heaven and the felicity or blessedness of all those saints in heaven. Look at verses 9 through 10 where John writes, After this, after he saw that, that those numbers who were sealed, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, the previous the previous part of the vision was a picture of the church militant on this earth and the security they have in, in God uh, by the Holy Spirit sealing them, this is a picture of the people of God in heaven, the church triumphant. And rather than being given a symbolic number, it's portrayed in terms, uh, not, not just the names of the 12 tribes, we're told that this is, a, this is a, a multitude that is so great it cannot be numbered, that the only one who could number, count, these, these, this great multitude was God himself. And I, you know, I believe this is teaching us what heaven is going to be like in a lot of ways. We are not going to be able to number the number of people in heaven. Only God will be able to do that. That's how many people God is going to save through his son, Jesus Christ. And notice that this, this large crowd isn't given uh, names according to the Jewish tribes. In fact, just the opposite. What does it say? It says, from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. Now, if you think about the first century church that would have received this letter, the the book of Revelation in the beginning, that might have been a mind-boggling thing for them to imagine. Some of these people had been chased from their homes through persecution, had to flee for their lives with the gospel. The book of Acts says that 
Everywhere they went, I'm paraphrasing, they took the gospel with them, and guess what? God spread the gospel even through persecution. No matter what the devil did, God used it to make his church grow. And I think this is given as a reassurance to God's people of our future blessedness in heaven. Not only are we secure in this life, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, but you have a hope and a home in heaven uh, that nothing can take away from you as well. Not only are believers in Christ secure on earth, even during tribulation, uh, but you have that forever home with the Lord waiting for you. And also it speaks of the, of the triumph of the gospel. You know, the triumphal entry is just a hint of the real triumphal entry. What, what are the palm branches? What did they mean? When they waved those palm branches and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David, they're treating Jesus as a conquering king. Now, he didn't come on a war horse. He came on a, on a, on a donkey's colt, a peacetime animal. But in heaven, what, what are they doing? Waving the palm branches. He's won the war. How did Jesus win the war? By laying down his life to pay for our sins and taking his life up again in the resurrection. He died and rose again. He didn't win the war by killing. He won the war by dying and rising again on the third day as we're going to celebrate next, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. You know, it's, it's easy for us in the church today, it's easy for me, maybe it is for you, to look around uh, and be discouraged. Even if, even if our church was ten times as big, which, Lord willing, who knows someday that, that could happen. God can do whatever he wants. Even if we were in a big church, I think we'd still probably be tempted to discouragement. We would say, look at the world around us. It seems to be just spiraling wildly out of control. It looks like Jesus isn't doing anything. And I keep telling my neighbors about Jesus, and they, don't, they keep not believing they keep staying in their sins. What is God doing? What is Jesus doing? And at times it seems like nothing much good is happening. Sometimes I think, we wouldn't admit this out loud, but I think sometimes we are tempted to think that Jesus doesn't really seem to be doing much right now, that he's not really at work. Sometimes it almost feels like, is he even in control of all things? You know, as us, as Calvinists, as Presbyterians, we, we like to say, as we think scripture teaches, that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Everything. Remember Jesus said that even the hairs of your head are numbered. He wasn't just saying God knows how many hairs are on your head. He's saying God even controls a hair falling from your head, just like he controls a bird that falls to the ground. And if he's in control of those small things, he's in control of of the big, big things. But sometimes it doesn't feel like he's in control, especially when we're going through tough times and tribulation. What does Hebrews 2.8 say? The writer says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that's Christ, he left nothing outside of his control. And then he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The writer of the Hebrews was honest. He's saying, look, he's in control of all things. All things have been placed under his feet. Psalm 8. It's a fulfillment of that at Christ's ascension. But it doesn't always look like all things are under his feet. There's still plenty of rebellion and sin in this world. Rebellion against Christ and rejection of his gospel. We don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but it is. Just like Revelation, what's one of the main themes in Revelation? Things are not always what they seem. Revelation is kind of pulling back the word reveal. It's we get the word apocalypse. It's, it's, to, it's to pull back the curtain, kind of Wizard of Oz talk, to let you see what's really going on. We need at times to be reminded what's really going on and things aren't always as they seem, as bad as they might seem sometimes on this earth. Uh, everything is under the authority of Jesus Christ. 
even if it doesn't look like it. Sometimes it seems like evil is winning. Sometimes it seems like the Lord is not blessing our witness to his gospel and is not working through it to save and transform sinners, but he is, and he will. Even the original Palm Sunday, you know, if you think about it, it, it seems like such a nice, you know, when I was a kid, I used to love, we didn't have it this morning, but when I was a kid in the church I grew up in, we had like palm fronds and, you know, we'd use them as weapons and things, but and we just liked the imagery of it. We, you know, when you're a kid, you like parades. Well, this was the greatest parade in human history, even if it didn't look like it outwardly, but in some ways, the original Palm Sunday was kind of a failure from a human perspective. If you look at it closely, does it really seem that triumphant? It kind of didn't. It kind of seems hollow in some ways, because, yeah, they're cheering him, but what happens next? You know, we have to say at least some of those same people that were saying, yay, Jesus, were saying crucify him. In less than a week, they, they go from lining the streets, throwing their clothes, their, their jackets and things on the road so the donkey wouldn't even get his hoof dirty, because Jesus raised a man from the dead, and then they were saying, crucify him. The Bible even says in John 12, that same chapter, that even his own disciples didn't even understand until what? Later. They're watching the whole thing, and they're like, I don't get it. I don't know, why are they cheering? You know, what, why are we even here? Why are we having a parade? What happened? They didn't understand that it was to fulfill Scripture. But in our text, we have this uncountable multitude of all the redeemed in Christ. And what are they doing? They're standing before the throne Verse 9, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And what are they doing? They're, they're worshiping Jesus. They're, they're praising the Lord, the Lamb, uh, who redeemed his people. And they're praising him for their salvation. That's a picture of heaven. In a sense, that's the real or the ultimate Palm Sunday is yet to come. The real celebration of the victory of Christ in achieving our salvation by laying down his life for our sins and rising from the grave. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ that you read about in the Gospels is a preview of what's to come. It's a small hint of what's to come in the true Palm Sunday, which is in heaven, when we're in heaven with the Lord. Uh, You know, Palm Sunday reminds us of the triumphal entry of Christ. We asked our kids uh, the last couple nights, you know, what's Palm Sunday about? And I won't lie, it was a lot of... uh, (laughs) The triumphal entry, that's not really a phrase we we talk about a lot, Uh, but it reminds us of what? The true triumph of Christ as the Savior. It reminds us that he, he was victorious not by avoiding death, but by dying in our place and rising again. It's It's a triumph that he's even doing it now. He's at work in this world gathering and defending his church, even though sometimes to us it doesn't seem like it. That's what this chapter is reminding us. Uh, and so we might have trouble seeing it, Another reason for this book, but uh, one day it's going to be clear to us that those words of the Pharisees we read this morning in John 12 are going to come in a lot of ways, in, in a very literal sense, come true when they say the whole world has gone after him. When we One day when we're standing among that crowd and looking around, we're going to be amazed at the grace of God in the gospel. We're never going to believe it till we see it. And one day we're going to, we're, we're going to see how many people God saved, that Christ saved from their Sins, not just this little group that we might think of. It's going to be an innumerable multitude in this world that God is saving. And no amount of even the most violent persecution on this earth and tribulation that, that, that comes the church's way in this life can ever hope to stop the spread of the gospel and the salvation of sinners. Revelation doesn't say, don't worry, it's not going to get bad. It doesn't say you won't have tribulation. God will just, you know, pull the ripcord and, and yank you out before it gets bad. What it does say is, 
Jesus is at work, and no matter what happens, you can't be lost, and there's going to be a lot of people saved. So many people, you won't be able to even number it. Jesus promised that he is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's this chapter, this part of chapter 7 of Revelation. Now, how is that even possible? Humanly speaking, it's not, right? How is it possible, despite the very worst that the evil one can throw the church's way on this earth, that one day we're going to see a multitude in heaven so great that we can't even begin to number it? How is it that all of these sinners, including you and I, can be saved and be able to stand before God one day? Remember that question at the end of chapter 6? The day of the wrath of the Lamb has come, and who can stand? And then what do you have? An innumerable multitude standing before the throne. Standing. How is that possible? On our own, it's not possible. We'd be standing at judgment. We wouldn't be praising. We'd be gnashing our teeth. And yet, how is it that you and I can stand before the throne of God one day in heaven and be praising God? Well, what do they say? They say it's, it's their praises is what gives us the, the clue. They shout with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is of whom? The Lord. He's the one that does it. We don't do it. We're, we're sinners. We don't do the saving. Jesus Christ does the saving. Our salvation from, from beginning to end is the work of Christ, the work of our God and Savior. And you know that multitude that we just read about? Where do you read about that? I mentioned it earlier in the service. Where do you read about that in the book of Genesis? All the way back to Genesis 15.5. You know, we, we often, as Presbyterians, as Reformed folks, we always talk about, about Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. But what's the verse right before that is God telling Abraham, a childless old man, go outside and look at the stars in the heavens. And if you can number them, so shall your offspring be. And what, what's the fulfillment of that? You and I are. That, that multitude in heaven is the fulfillment of that promise of God to Abraham. Well, that brings us to the third thing, which is in a lot of ways just like the second thing in our text in the last three verses of the chapter. And that's not just the security of the church militant on this earth. It's not just the success of the gospel and the felicity or happiness of the church triumphant in heaven, but it's also the perfect blessedness of all all of God's people when we're in heaven. So the second point was so nice, I said it twice. Uh, John, John says that those who have washed their robes, verse 14, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, will be what? Before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. Verse 15. And that God himself was going to shelter them in his tabernacle. And they were no longer going to hunger or thirst or suffer the scorching heat. Why? What, what, what's that a picture of? It's, think about, think about the, flip that over. Turn it over on, on, you know, make it backwards. Suffering hunger and thirst and scorching heat. What's it a picture of? It's a picture of the wilderness wanderings. It's a picture of wandering in the desert without a home. And then what do you have at the end of our chapter? Those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I asked the kids last night, I said, if you dip something in blood, do you wash things with blood? What color would it be? Would it be white? It would be red. It's an odd picture, but we we wash our robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And and Eliza had it right. She said that it means he, he washed away our sins. By his blood. This is a picture of the wilderness wanderings being over and us being at home with the Lord. This is not our home. 
on, on your best day in this life, and God, by his grace and kindness, gives us a lot of good days in this life. I've had lots of good days, way more than my bad days, and you probably have too. On your best day in this life, whatever that day might be, whether it's past or future, still isn't your home here. This is a pilgrimage. Our home, our real home is in heaven with the Lord, and Jesus went to go prepare a place for us. And what did he, what did he say? If, if I go to prepare a place, paraphrasing, I'm going to come get you that you might dwell with me. I don't make you a place for nothing. I make you a place for you to be in forever. And look at verse 17. It says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This last part of the chapter has some really odd word pictures. You have uh, robes washed white in blood, and you have a lamb who is the shepherd. When it says that the lamb uh, in the midst of whose throne will be their shepherd, the lamb is the one shepherding us, and what's he going to do? He's going to guide us to springs of living water, and he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes, from your eyes. In other words, there's tears in this life. We all know that. There's tears. There's plenty of tears in this life, but one day God himself will wipe it away. That's quite an intimate picture. You don't just let anybody touch your face. You, you keep your personal space, but your, your family, your father especially, can do just that. And this is kind of a preview of sorts of the end of Revelation. Look at Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4, right towards the end. And the same exact kind of thing is mentioned. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And here it is. He will wipe away what? Every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things, the things of this life, have passed away. So in this chapter in Revelation we have a glimpse of the perfect rest of the saints in glory because of the perfect care of the good shepherd of the sheep, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by his blood. The good shepherd, our good shepherd, your good shepherd and mine, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, will shelter, guide, and care for us in every way forever. Not just in this life, but in the life to come in heaven. I think, why does John give us this intermission? Why does he give us this kind of time out, so to speak, in the midst of these visions of the seals, I think these are the things that you and I need to be reminded of again and again in this life. These are the things that will bring God's people great comfort and peace and reassurance, even in time of tribulation and distress. And so I think this intermission of sorts is given to us in chapter 7. Uh, it's given because it's vital to our, our vision of the mission that we're on. It's hard to serve God in our generation without this kind of hope being placed before us again and again. I, I, I don't think it's, it's not an accident. You know, God could have written Revelation much differently. He could have inspired it much differently. He could have put this just at the very end. But he doesn't do that. I mean, it's at the end. It's at Revelation 21. We just read it. But he puts it at chapter 7 also. We're, we're like, you know, almost a third of the way through the book. And yet, what does he do? It's like he stops he stops the action and shows us that to encourage us for the rest of the book and the rest of this life as we serve God in our generation. We, we need to be reminded of where we're going in order to strengthen us for the journey that we're on. And so the Lord gives us this intermission in our text, and it's almost disrespectful to call it an intermission, isn't it? It's the main picture. The other stuff is, is the littler stuff. 
the main picture is this. This is the dominant theme for God's people in the book of Revelation, that God will be with us as our God and will be with him as his people. Amen.